Welcome to the 31st episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Rousseau, and I'm your host. If you feel that listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. This episode is dedicated to all of those who have replaced the truth of their own self-concept with that of a camera lens, which is the tendency of our entire society, to be fair. It's dedicated to those who have unknowingly let the apparatus of image dictate their self-worth and value on any given day. Let this be a reminder that your beauty is found internally and what has emanated from inside you could not possibly be captured in one image. A question that I get asked a lot about is how to deal with seeing yourself. In the brutal lens of an eating disorder, seeing yourself in a mirror or in pictures can be incredibly triggering. This is one of the pitfalls of self-objectification during the eating disorder, where we are ruled by parts of ourself and how they measure up to a thin ideal. It is hard to see others who are thin or who might exist in our ideal bodies, yet I think it might be even harder to see ourselves. During an eating disorder, image fuels restriction or binge. Our eyes are diseased and dangerous in this way, as they become what then prompts what we are allowed to eat or how much we need to exercise to undo the damage we see in our reflection. We exist fragmented. Thighs that need shaping, a stomach that needs flattening, arms that need lessening. We become obsessed with how much of us may disappear or how much of us we can force to disappear. How we view ourselves during the eating disorder traverses the junction between ill and in recovery. This lens at which we view ourselves does not automatically change the day we decide we want to get help. At any point during recovery, most especially physical recovery, Seeing our bodies transform for health can be challenging. It is most important to note that the distorted lens at which we view ourselves exists on a spectrum where body dysmorphia might be most extreme. Typically, a person with body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, is concerned about a specific body part, while a person with an eating disorder may worry about their weight or the overall shape of their body. A person with an eating disorder might pinpoint specific problem areas of which later become the focus of body dysmorphia. People with BDD and anorexia specifically appear to actually see themselves differently than other people do. They focus on tiny details when looking at faces, bodies, or other objects. The intersection of BDD and eating disorders is complicated. It generally involves a perception of a part instead of the whole. Additionally, it is estimated that one-third of individuals with BDD also struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their lifetimes, and research suggests that at least some of the symptoms of BDD may appear in 25% of those with anorexia for at least six months prior to the eating disorder emergence. 
If you would like to learn more about the concomitants of BDD and eating disorders, please visit HTIL episode 22, which is entitled Body Dysmorphia. Although our bodies may have changed post-eating disorder, the lens at which we view them might not have. And this is where the work begins. We have come to rely on a mirror for our self-worth and manipulated our bodies to function within our society-driven thin ideal. The eating disorder, as mentioned before, promotes a fetishistic, voyeuristic, dehumanizing lens at which to view ourselves in the space at which we inhabit. The lens is built and cemented every single time you look in a mirror. Mirror checking, whether accidental or purposeful post-eating disorder, is tricky. Stumbling upon old photos of yourself peak eating disorder is even trickier. Morphing the lens at which we view ourselves to exist outside of the confines of the eating disorder is trickiest. Triggers of this type of body image issue, whether presented because of a mirror or photograph, might exist in any stage of recovery, but are perhaps most prevalent in the middle three. Preparation, action, and maintenance. Preparation describes the period where the individual is ready for change but needs guidance. They develop coping skills such as boundary setting or potential barriers. They tend to their personal needs and a plan of action is developed. In the preparation stage, the individual must identify triggers and mitigate for protective measures against them. Next, in the action phase, an individual might implement an action plan. A support system is crucial during this point because the individual is attempting to remove triggers from their life. The maintenance phase is a sustained action stage for approximately six months or longer. This is the point in the recoverer's life where they actively rehabituate new ways of, new ways of thinking of themselves. They use coping skills to revisit potential triggers in order to prevent relapse. New self-definitions, new adaptive behaviors are implemented. It is important to note that relapse is possible at this stage, generally because of the unintentional or intentional reintroduction of triggers. To break the trigger to disordered behavior response, those in recovery must learn the triggers specific to them and practice ways to manage the potential for relapse. The first step, as we've talked about, is identification and awareness. You must identify, name, voice, become aware of triggers specific to you, whether they be clothing, mirrors, a scale, certain language, toothbrushes. It could be any ordinary object that, as stored in our brain, holds a heavy emotional memory. The next step is interruption. Pause when you are faced with a disordered urge. Suspend the desire to immediately give in. And give yourself time to engage in positive behaviors or responses. Urges may include an urge to mirror check, especially around mealtimes, 
as a way to gauge how much you are allowed to eat or how much damage you've done or to scroll through old photos of yourself as inspiration for a next restrictive cycle or to scroll through social media saving accounts that feature ideal bodies, knowing this will come to be an image seared in the eating disorder mind. I did this to myself. During a point in my recovery after I had ditched the scale, and without the objective measure of weight in pounds, I subconsciously attempted to define myself in my new body in new ways. Which might have been through photos, especially peak eating disorder, or through clothing. These triggers might also be accidental. You walk past a window reflection and unintentionally grab a sight of your profile. Or you're shown an old picture or video of yourself pre or during eating disorder from a friend or family member. Or you're faced with a mirror while trying to shop or get your hair done or exercise or change or when you're in the bathroom or you get a facial or you're driving, etc. Clearly, mirrors are incredibly difficult to avoid. The next step, step three, is to implement adaptive behaviors to engage in within that space between the disordered urge and the disordered behavior. It's interesting, this idea of space, because the eating disorder typically tells us, I need to take up less space. And in order to fight the eating disorder, you have to construct a space between the disordered urge and the disordered behavior in order to heal, in order to recover. The goal during this point is to let your body feel something pleasant. You might journal or expressively write. You might listen to music. You might find inspirational social media accounts, or you might write a poem or practice yoga or meditation or color or watch a favorite movie or TV show, pick up a new book, take a bubble bath, do a face mask, do a 10-finger gratitude count, whatever helps you to self-care, to take care of the body that you live in, and to do something positive and meaningful and healing, that's what you do. And then step number four is repetition. The more you pair a negative feeling with a healthier adaptive response, the stronger that link will become. Repetition will become regular practice. Habituation and desensitization is important. Your brain will rehabituate new ways to exist with these triggers, but that takes an active person to rewire. Triggers are the manifestation of trauma which occurs during the suffering of one with an eating disorder and also during recovery. As I've mentioned, these triggers can be even simple everyday objects or experiences or language, yet because of the association in the sufferer's mind become disturbing stimuli. They elicit intrusive thoughts, which are correlated with strong emotional or behavioral reactions, as if the trauma was reoccurring. Those with eating disorders feel a compulsive urge to act on the disordered thoughts and feelings when they are triggered. The disordered eating and negative thoughts associated are a result of the trigger. If one is triggered, they might relapse and revert back to destructive patterns of behavior. 
Those who have struggled with eating disorders and those who help them in recovery are privy to an entire other language littered with triggers, especially because we live in a diet culture. The formation of triggers, the specificity of the formation of triggers is currently unknown. Yet some research be- researchers believe that our brains store memories differently when dealing with a traumatic event versus a non-traumatic event. These triggers are ultimately the most divisive signification of disordered thought. They are not a choice, yet they determine involuntarily our reaction or response. Triggers can even generate shame, which leads survivors to isolate themselves, believing the experience to have damaged them irreparably. Trauma is often not a one-time thing, unfortunately. Multiplicity, repetition, and longevity are attributed. The amygdala, a structure in the brain, is designed to detect these threats of trauma within our environment and automatically activate the fight-flight-freeze response in reaction to said threat. So your amygdala will release certain chemicals, including adrenaline, norepinephrine, and glucose, to prepare your body to react to the threat sufficiently and to protect itself. It also helps you to store new emotional or threat-related memories. This storage results in the reoccurrence of trauma through triggers. And because of the overactiveness of the amygdala, your reaction system will be hyper-aroused when these triggers are in play. To answer the question that was asked at the beginning of the episode, how do you continue to see yourself again? This is what I've done. First, avoid it if needed. Some days you are stronger than others. Try and lift yourself outside of the emotion as it's happening to you. You are sitting atop the cloud of feeling as it passes by below. Ride the wave of the trigger and make it safely back to shore. I also try to elevate the joyous experiences of the moment the picture was captured instead of dwelling in the self-disgust. Fight against the eating disorder. It does not deserve to steal another happy memory from you. As much as you shouldn't always trust the camera lens, also note that you shouldn't always trust your eyes either. They have been diseased by the eating disorder, not irreversibly so, but very strongly nonetheless which is also scientifically proven with those who have suffered from anorexia. As mentioned before, they actually see themselves differently. I've had the experience on many occasions in which I look at a certain part of my body and feel dissatisfied or angry, only to look moments or hours later and realize my initial impression was an exaggeration. The inconsistency is unnerving, but it is a reminder that our eyes deceive us and the appearance of our body through our eyes typically doesn't tell the full story. Your body cannot anatomically perceptibly change in such ways in just a few moments. This is the eating disorder trying to trick you. I also found some tremendous resources online that I think might be helpful to share here. 
If you see a picture that prompts body hating, list several things that you like about yourself. Body image may be the last thing to get better, so you have to confront it with all your might. Also consider practicing body neutrality, which is a focus on what your body can do for you rather than what it looks like. The aim is to feel at peace with your body, which is deserving of respect without judgment or criticism. Positivity is not forced. You are encouraged to recognize your body's abilities and non-physical characteristics that contribute to forming the whole of your person. There's more about body neutrality on HTIL episode 23, Celebrating Weight Gain and Body Positivity and Neutrality, and on my blog, pennyformythoughts.org. Seeing yourself in a photo or in the mirror and mainly only seeing your body size is likely a sign that your body size is over-identified as who you are. Do not over-identify. Your body is not entirely you. Quote, You and your body are not the problem. We live in a broken world that doesn't want you to accept fat on your body, a society who wants you striving for thinness. But thin isn't what all of us are called to be. End quote. Get curious. Think about what might contribute to these negative thoughts. Stress or anxiety or unfelt and silenced emotions may discolor the lens at which you view yourself. Contextualize the disordered thought based on what you experienced before that. So instead of going for body bashing, I challenge you to unearth what else is bothering you or stressing you out that you are blaming your body for. A lot of times it is easier to blame your body size than to address the underlying dissatisfaction that you are feeling. Remind yourself that you still need taken care of and free yourself from the orientation of becoming smaller when you are not meant to take up less space. And note whether the eating disorder is a familiar coping mechanism that makes dealing with what you cannot control that much easier. Jennifer Rollin, a renowned eating disorder therapist, has a great article with many steps I would also advocate for that I will list in the show notes if you care to read. She says, number one, recognize that it's just one perspective of a moment in time. Typically, our cameras cannot capture the beauty of a full moon, a fire red sunset, or a still lake. Typically, photographers might edit these photos, distorting its natural qualities to enhance its beauty and market value. If lenses are not able to capture nature in its true beauty, it most likely will not be able to capture your true beauty, which emanates from the inside. There is a false beauty, a disconnect, a disparate time and space ever since the clicking sound is made. From that time on, you are not exactly the same as that one moment. You will never be that young again. You will never hold that sameness again. It is a single moment, and one single moment should not take precedence over the thousands of other moments you have throughout the day. Remember that what you are looking at is not actually your body, but only a representation of your body. And many factors influence this representation, the lighting, the angles, the quality of the camera, the capability of the photographer. Our bodies, in their essence, can never be captured fully. They can only be represented, and I find massive comfort in this ideal. 
The body you see in the photo lacks the aura of your actual body. It is disjunct, disparate. It is a copy, a reproduction, but not the real thing. Number two, refocus on the memory being made. Don't zoom in on the photo, instead zoom out. Literally and metaphorically, you are likely making memories, ones that deserve to be stored without the emotional weight of distressing body image. Don't let a false perception of your body hijack the beautiful moment you made. 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you will want to cherish the memory of that day instead of the size of a body part. And number three, remind yourself that you are so much more than your appearance. Let go of the elusive body standards diet culture has ingrained in us and practice body neutrality. Jennifer Rollins says it best. I don't need you to fall in love with your body. I want you to fall in love with your life. If you would like to learn more about what sources I used in the discussion of body image, my citations will be placed in the show notes. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support and recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project HEAL, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States delivering prevention, treatment, financing, and recovery support for those struggling with eating disorders. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTL has its very own Instagram and Twitter account, so if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on Instagram at Look and Twitter at HTL Podcast. Do not be afraid to reach out if you would like to share your own story. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTL is a space of healing, of recovery, and of storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.